Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. We have a two-part show today with two segments that, in their own way, focus on reimagining our relationship to technology and the ways in which it contributes to our reality. The first segment features Jaslyn, an interdisciplinary artist, curator, and creative director, and a graduate MFA student in Parsons Design and Technology program. Jaslyn is one of the creators of Black Beyond, a platform for making space for artists and activists to speculate alternate realities for blackness. Black Beyond is hosting a virtual new media festival titled Black Beyond Origins to reimagine black film futures starting June 17, 2021. I caught up with Jaslyn about the festival and about her vision for a world that repositions and centers communities that are often left out of discussions on technology or what is the future. So my name is Jaslyn, she, her pronouns, and I'm the creative curatorial director of Black Beyond which started off as a group exhibition at Parsons for Black new media artists. Due to the pandemic, um, the show has been postponed, but in the interim, it has grown into this radical space for artists and activists to speculate alternate realities for Blackness. Tell me uh, a little bit more about what this is. Um, It's a space, you're curating a show, it's kicking off on the 17th, I believe. Yeah, so the event is called Origins, Black Beyond Origins for the full title. And attendees will see visions and manifestations of a Black film future. Origins is a virtual collaborative experience that serves as an ode to Black films, women with an X, and gender nonconforming and beyond. And as you had mentioned, yeah, the event, it's a four-day event that starts on June 17th, uh, starting at 5 p.m. And it's leading into the Juneteenth weekend. Each day will feature workshops, talks, performances, and a new media art exhibition in a virtual gallery space hosted by New Art City. So this podcast focuses on technology and technology policy, and we try to imagine uh, not only a a different future, but also to uh, critique and consider the present, um, the technology ecosystem we have. What what do you think this show says about the moment we're in and about where we're headed? So essentially, like Black Beyond is like touching base on different Black critical theories and how they relate to each other, specifically Afro-pessimism, Afro-nowism, and Afrofuturism. And then like also doing so from like, you know, a Black feminist theory and critical race studies lens. And so like all these theories, like as I mentioned, they relate to each other, but it's also like nonlinear I think what Black Beyond is trying to do is is trying to redefine this transitional state, this transitional present state from Afro-pessimism and the ongoing effects of racism, colonialism, and the historical process of enslavement to this actualization of this alternate reality via community organizing, art activism, social education, decolonization, and re-indigenization. I've actually been recently struggling with the term Afrofuturism, because recently I figured out that it was coined by someone who was non-Black. At least that's that's allegedly. They might have been the first person to write about it, but the term could have been out in the streets before they wrote about it. And even like the term 
coin or like the act of coining something, it's like, how can you try to monetize off of a movement, especially like if you're not part of that community? But essentially like Afrofuturism is speaking to, during that time when it was like, quote unquote, coined, it was speaking to like a genre of, of different arts and in particular music that was like speculative Black music about yeah, about different realities, about the future, about seeing Black people in the future. Like, you know, a whole, like, literal, like, discourse has been developing around it since, I want to say, like, the 70s. It's kind of like when it started and to present day. But now, as I had mentioned, I, I think, like, we are trying to, like, expand on what Afrofuturism is. And quite frankly, I don't feel like it's radical enough. What would make it radical enough for you? I think I think this is going back to, like, Black Beyond and how it's trying to define this transitional state from Afro-pessimism to this ideal future, quote unquote. And then also thinking about how if you don't seize the now, then this, you know, this desire for the future, this ideal future is going to incessantly exist in the future. So like, what, what are you doing to make the future now? And I, I think Afro-nowism is speaking to that and it's the more radical interpretation like why why can't the future be now you know we are living in the future that afrofuturism was speaking to quote unquote so i think it's just like a matter of feeling empowered despite afropessimism that like coexist at the same time it's taking hold of your own superpower you know that you have within ourselves and like within our community to define our future so how does technology fit into to this show and in, into these ideas it's happening virtually. So essentially, technology is central to the work that we're doing. I think that's an interesting question to think about, especially like when we think about Black communities and technology and access to technology, or like not just technology in general, but just like just access to resources. You know, like we have to make do with what we do have access to. And if it's coming together as a community online, to plant seeds for, for what we want to see in reality. I think that's like, you know, how technology is essential to the project. It's using like, it's using technology as a platform to organize. But we are featuring several artists. Um, Kennedy Carter, for example, recently shot Beyonce for the cover of British Vogue, along with Marcella Kennedy and Marcella will host an intimate workshop on black romance and eroticism expanding on how love and Black love in particular is a radical and revolutionary act. We'll be having a performance by Tiger Paw, um, and that's going to be live streamed in New Art City, which is like this 3D digital platform. It's like a multiplayer platform. So you can like tap in anywhere on the planet and engage in this experience in an immersive, yeah, an immersive space. We also have a Black Femme Experimental Harpist Aya Simone, who will be opening up the closing meditation workshops that we're having on Sunday. So that's another exciting thing that's happening. So one of the themes kind of deals with this idea of uh, collective healing amidst apocalypse. Do you think we're, we're, we're in an apocalyptic moment? Is that part of this? Is it a comment on where we are uh, in society at the moment? We certainly feel like we've come out of a near apocalyptic moment with the pandemic. I think people might feel like it's a little bit of a break, but then that's just like depends on your perspective and your location, right? But yeah, I, I do think that that particular line in the curatorial statement is speaking to 
to the reality of our situation. And it's like, how do we continue to live through what feels like an apocalypse? And especially speaking to the Black community, where we've already been through so much. And the reason why we're here today is because we know how to survive through what feels like an apocalypse. I think that Origins is tapping into that and trying to hold space for that and trying to like remind, to remind not only just myself, but to remind each other, like, hey, we got each other and we can decide what our future looks like if we just find a way to believe in it and to believe in each other. You're offering on some level, the part of this is about not just a, a vision of the real world in the future, but also of the, the virtual, or the technical world. What do you want to change about the moment we're in? I think this like makes me go back to the point of like decolonizing and re-indigenizing and just thinking about the origins of technology and how they are indigenous. And although like us coming together in a virtual space that we didn't necessarily, like on the internet that we didn't necessarily create, I think just like us holding this space together and trying to imagine like what would technology that is designed from the perspective of Black films, what would that look like? What would that feel like? How would it be different? And also, could you imagine like what it would be like to live or to experience technology or what technology would be like prior to colonization? Are there hypotheses you have about about what it would look like? I, I think like the visual language of origins is speaking to that. It's specifically like the visual language is tapping into Octavia Butler, taking a second, it's an ode to her work and the landscapes, the otherworldliness, the regenerativeness, you know, if anything, like the visual language of origins is trying to speak to those themes indirectly. Yeah, instead of harm, it looks like care. It looks and feels like care. And, and that's the space that, you know, we're trying to create with origins. Where do you see the harm currently in our technology ecosystem? That's such a loaded question. I think I can just go to the foundations of capitalism, which is the transatlantic slave trade, that it's like the foundations of capitalism, especially in this country, and like how that's exploitive and that's extractive. And, you know, that has manifested into what technology is today, to be exploitive and to be extractive, to extract your data and to manipulate you by extracting that data and to monetize on it and not to care about how that impacts you or your communities and how that can also impact access um, and resources. It's to, yeah, to like entire political systems. It's like, how do you turn that inside out, you know? And I think like, we're just like tapping into that and like just holding a space together that is a space of care. But like, I don't, I don't have the answers on how do you subvert that, but it is like the imaginings of like, okay, if, if this wasn't the case, you know, what would this technology look like? What would it feel like? What would the internet look like? What would it feel like? Eves B. Golden, who is hosting a healing sound bath workshop. She also is a part of the Herbal Mutual Aid Network. What they do is they create these um, like herbal medicinal kits to give to, to give to Black people as a way to think about kind of tapping in on the subject of care again, and then just considering how much the Black community goes through in general, but especially how that was emphasized last year, um, also through the media. That project in itself, I find highly inspiring. 
the fact that they've created this mutual aid network to care for a community that needs it. And essentially like that is the type of work that Origins is trying to do. It's like, how do we bring this work that, you know, people are doing and, and their communities um, together? How do we like hold this space and then elevate it? This is a moment in New York where a lot of people are thinking about future of the city, thinking about um, how things could potentially be different post-pandemic. You know, this is a show that's on, on some level coming out of New York, coming out of Parsons. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think there's any any lesson or idea in what you're doing that you'd like to see the city think of or or adopt in some way? Yeah, I mean, I think the city, especially like what was going on during the pandemic and the housing issue and how that was such a crisis and how so many people were dislocated and thinking about housing as healthcare. If Origins is a macro, a lot of macro, but more of a micro level of creating this, this space of care, like, yeah, how can the city replicate that for this community? Like Origins is trying to elevate these voices and the work that they're doing and to show that they are an important part of, of the community and that the work that they do is valued. And how can the city show the same type of value and care towards this community? Can you just tell me a little bit about you? Like, uh, how did you come to do this? And how did you, you come to New York? How did you come to Parsons? What were you doing before that? I, I have a background in textile and fashion design. You know, New York is a city for that. But before coming to New York, I was also working in a nanotechnology lab, like wearable textiles. And I was, I was looking for a community that could combine like, you know, um, I guess like experimental technology approaches to art and design. So yeah, that's what led me to, to come to New York and how I ended up at Parsons. I think like the most important thing is that I was able to, you know, I was able to get into Parsons. I felt like I had privilege to, to be at this institution. I think with that sense of privilege came a sense of responsibility, just given like my community and where I come from and how people from my community don't have access to this institution or to these resources. Yeah, this project, Black Beyond, which started off as like as a group show at Parsons was not just about like, okay, how can we show and display artists and their work in this space that it's it's difficult to to be a new media digital artist as a black as a black creative but also how can we open up this space to the greater community who doesn't have access to, to this institution? Like who, who inside institutions is making space for Black films? You know, if that was a responsibility that I felt I needed to take on, then I'm happy to do so. So can you tell me about alternate realities on uh, Dub Lab Radio? What's that about? Yeah, so uh, Black Beyond has a monthly segment on Dub Lab Radio. Um, and it's an extension of, you know, the work that we're doing, actually thinking about for, you know, our show that's coming up at the end of June, just like archiving the sound performances and workshops that are happening and um, broadcasting that on DubLab as well. But yeah, it's just like, it's another outlet for, you know, Black Beyond to elevate Black voices. Yeah, so you can tune in uh, to Alternate Realities on DubLab every fourth Wednesday of the month. And it airs at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. PST. Origin starts on the 17th, June 17th at 5 p.m. Eastern, 
and activities and events are happening through June 20th. In many ways, this is a festival. You've got workshops, talks, performances, exhibition, uh, all in a virtual gallery space. Um, what, what are some of the things that are going to happen? What would people experience if they participate in Origins? During our opening, we'll have like people will be able to walk around in the virtual gallery space, which is I can't give away too many details, but it's going to feel like you've ascended into a different planet. And then we're going to have the opening talk with Jojo Abbott, um, moderated by Rhea Beckett. And then we're also going to have a birthing workshop following that um, with the Renee. So thinking about like Black doulas. And then to close off the opening night, we will have a performance by Tagapal, which will be live streamed in New Art City. Shout out to our venue that's hosting this, Beverly's, or in New York City, Lower East Side. And then there's so many other things that are happening um, through Sunday. One thing that I'm looking forward to is a workshop with Kennedy Carter and Marcella, who um, are doing a workshop on Black romance and eroticism, expanding on how love, Black love, is a radical and revolutionary act. Awesome. It sounds like a lot of fun. I'm going to try to tune in for at least some part of it, but I look forward to it. I really thank you for taking the time out of your Saturday to talk to me. Yeah, likewise. Thank you for having Black Beyond and for shouting out Origins and all the work that we're doing. You can learn more about Origins at blackbeyond.xyz or at blackbeyond underscore origins.eventbrite.com. And check out the alternate reality segment on DubLab Radio at dublab.com slash djs slash black dash beyond. If you are enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press slash podcast to find a link to subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you're there, join our newsletter. Next up, we look at another set of ideas for reimagining our relationship to technology and the world around us. The urban tech hub of the Jacobs Technion Cornell Institute at Cornell Tech is a new venture in New York City that generates applied research, fosters an expanding tech ecosystem, and cultivates the next generation of leaders in urban technology. Last month, the Jacobs Urban Tech Hub released Rebooting NYC, an urban tech agenda for the next administration, a set of strategic recommendations for how the next New York City mayor, city council, comptroller, public advocate, and borough presidents can leverage new technologies to improve the lives of all New Yorkers. I spoke to Reed Agarwala, formerly an executive at Sidewalk Labs and now the Hub's senior urban tech fellow, and Matt Stimpak, who is currently at Cornell University as technologist-in-residence working on urban tech issues, about the report. You can find the full report at urban.tech.cornell.edu. Hi, I'm Matt Stempek, and I'm technologist in residence at Cornell Tech. And I'm Rid Agarwal, and I'm a uh, senior fellow at the Urban Tech Hub at the Jacobs Institute at Cornell Tech. And you all have just released this uh, draft for discussion, a, a fairly lengthy report, Rebooting NYC, an Urban Tech Agenda for the Next Administration. How long have you been working on this, when, and what was the impetus to put this together? Well, the, the project started last fall, and it was really something I, I had been in conversation with Michael Samwellian, the founding director of the Hub, and uh, some of the other folks at Cornell Tech about the Urban Tech Hub as they had been consulting with a variety of New Yorkers over the last two years on, on what to do when they started this. And I had suggested to them that they um, 
they take advantage of the fact that they were starting this urban tech hub only a year before a really important local election, right? When, as we all know, you know, not only the mayor, but the controller and four out of five borough presidents and probably something like 40 members of the, of the city council. So four fifths of the city council is going to change over. There's a huge opportunity, therefore, to, to offer a nonpartisan roadmap for what this new government might do, because while lots of the candidates will have ideas and recommendations, generally speaking, candidates' platforms are not as deep as the kind of work that one aspires to come out of an academic institution. And so we thought there was an opportunity to do that. And so we really started up back as early as October, November of last year. Um, the team grew. We issued this draft r- report just a couple of weeks ago recognizing the fact that thus far, it's really been an expert-driven approach. And now we want to put it out there for comments so we can start getting feedback from people who are not deep in the world of policy or technology. Quickly, just for, for our listeners, tell us what you mean by urban tech. You know, there are a lot of, a lot of definitions. There's GovTech and CivTech and urban tech. And then, of course, there's smart cities, which is a term I at least don't like to use because it's either too brandy and it suggest that cities haven't been smart when in fact cities are always adopting new types of technology and have been for thousands of years. At least the way, and and Matt, actually, you know, I don't think you and I ever had a real conversation about how we define it. So this could be fun, but at least the way I think about it is it's broader than civic tech, at least the way civic tech often focuses. Civic tech tends to focus on services and, and engagement. Smart cities tends to focus only on kind of data and automation. And what I think is valuable is that it actually, it includes both of those things, but it also can include the way that cities actually deliver their, their services. And, you know, in, in this report, we run the gamut from thinking about how the city holds your data if you're applying for social services, but also to how the city crafts its rules to enable things like whether it's autonomous vehicles or drones to do facade inspection. I think of all of that as urban technology because it's the kind of thing that whether it's done by the government or facilitated by the government, it actually makes the city function better. I don't know, Matt, how'd I do? I concur with that. Um, and the only thing I'll add is uh, this this definition I took from this guy, Aaron Strauss, a long time ago around civic tech is and it's the same for this report. We're looking at the areas of tech that affect our lives together around shared challenges and shared opportunities more so than, you know, private privatized tech. So a lot of the VC tech in New York, you know, takes on challenges people have in their lives, but often as private consumers, we're looking at, you know, how we interact in public space, right? Like the streetscape and curb space is a heavily fought over and valuable public resource. And so what is the tech that helps us, you know, negotiate that space? It makes sense then that you you start in the report with the boundary between the private and the public, focusing on privacy. You're proposing here uh, new laws, new rules. What do you have in mind? And, and, and why is privacy the first step? Well, privacy is the first step because it's the thing that would the, the absence of rules around privacy are the kind are the the core of what I think will get in the way of New York City or any other city that's democratic in nature get in the way of of embracing and making use of this technology. It was striking to me that every I mean we did a total of 120 interviews for this project, and in certainly all of the ones that I did, 
the first thing people would mention as either a concern that they had about given ideas or a concern that they knew others would raise and therefore, you know, stop or slow down or object to had to do with privacy. And so to a certain extent, it's the gating function, because if you don't know what the rules are, there's a lot of legitimate hesitation, legitimate concern, legitimate opposition. Once you clarify the rules for how the city will use data, for what's a legitimate reason to collect data in the public realm, how, how private entities have to be clear about what they are collecting in the public realm, all of a sudden people start focusing more on what you're actually trying to accomplish with the technology, as opposed to the fear of what it might do against them. That has been a challenge in, in past projects in the city. You know, you think of things like Link or you know, other projects that where, where the primary concern that citizens have had has been a uh, you know, privacy concern. Um, but we know that there is a massive amount of data that's locked up in, in private companies that could be valuable to the public. Do you think you can get at some of that with proper rules? You know, that was not something that we had actually addressed in this report. And, and I will say, you know, we, we aim to be comprehensive, but of course, nobody can be comprehensive and certainly not a small team working in only a couple of months. So frankly, we didn't tackle that one. I, I think the, the thing that we did realize was worth addressing was the simple fact that, for example, there's no data on this, but it's clearly the case that the majority of the cameras in New York City recording what's going on on the street are privately owned. They're not publicly owned. They're not traffic cams or NYPD cams. They're the security cameras that this bodega or this condo or whoever has in front of their property or the dash cams on your vehicle or whatever. And that's a completely unregulated space right now. And frankly, I didn't, we didn't arrive at a conclusion that it had to be stopped or necessarily overly regulated. But we did come to the conclusion that, at least in most cases, transparency on what's being collected and why and by whom would be a valuable addition. That's an interesting point. I mean, you know, as um, as various um, machine learning algorithms and the rest become kind of consumer available, you can imagine potentially your bodega owner running, you know, processing your video <laughs> yeah, uh, in some more doorbell complicated way. Doorbell cameras are already being used in partnership with law enforcement agencies across the country, right? And using sometimes facial recognition, which we know is not a perfect technology by any means. You talk about uh, technology equity and this idea of including all in, in the digital economy. And the first place you start there is with broadband. And you have a pretty big proposal one that might not make uh, some of the larger telecom companies too happy, this idea of a broadband development corporation. Well, you know, we, we did a close read of, of the internet master plan that the city came out with um, and, and talked to a number of people about it. And then the general consensus was that it's the right idea is to build out a city owned backbone. And, and whether that means the city has to own the fiber itself or the city just has to make sure that, that the fiber can be laid at a relatively low cost that that would ensure universal coverage and ideally competition in the sector. Um, <clears throat> but the internet master plan kind of ended there. It did not take the next step of recommending what's the institution to drive this forward. And so rather than you know, quibble with the plan that exists, our idea was let's just figure out what it would take to implement this. And, and we did come to the conclusion that you know, neither the office of the chief technology officer, which is a mayoral office and a policy shop, right, nor do it 
which is the city agency that currently regulates and, and manages the city's IT systems, that neither of those entities is really well equipped to take on such a massive effort that instead a local development corporation, which the city can create, um, which could have dedicated revenues and, and make use of bonding authority is the right kind of vehicle for what is inevitably a 10 year long, $2 billion project that really involves a lot of, a lot of construction management. Yeah, and we found, um, this is maybe too obvious to state, but internet access is another foundational layer along with data and privacy, right? Like nothing else we talk about in the report makes any sense or can be of much public use if 20% of New Yorkers don't have broadband access. So we need to sort of address these two front on before we can build on it with the other kind of more fun applications. That's right. And, and you know, Matt, you're, you're totally right in building on that. One of the reasons it's foundational, you know, there's, there's one argument out there that says, well, if, if people choose not to have broadband, you know, that's fine. That's their own decision. On the other hand, much like privacy, if not everybody has broadband, then it's, it's fundamentally not right for the city to rely on the digital economy increasingly. And so it becomes more and more of a utility that we need, in fact, to ensure there is universal access, as opposed to thinking of it as a luxury and an option. You spend quite a long time uh, focused on the what you call the built environment, and specifically, you know, around uh, transportation, construction, code review for uh, for buildings. Um, talk a little bit about that and how that would happen. Clearly, you're talking about kind of applying technology to sort of managing the actual physical infrastructure of the city in a way that it's not being done at the moment. There are tremendous opportunities to rethink the way the city actually manages. The city actually does its core job, you know, and, and this is one of the things where I hope we, we've made a, a contribution. I, I think a lot of the discourse around GovTech and civic tech is around what the city does with all of its data. But in fact, part of what interests me even more is how does the city change what it does to manage the city making use of new technologies? And so, yes, you're totally right. I mean, we've, we've already got the largest speed camera system in the United States and maybe the world, although I'm not 100% convinced, even though that assertion has been made. But there's still so much more that we could do to replace traditional enforcement of traffic violations with camera-based enforcement, um, <clears throat> you know, and it runs the gamut. Right now, we're just using them for speeding and, and red lights, but of course, the computer vision technology can manage for uh, reckless driving, illegal turns, blocking bus lanes, which they're doing uh, in, in some cases, blocking bike lanes, which they're not doing right now, any number of things. And it has the, the multiple benefits of eliminating what is Number one, a really dangerous thing, like trying to stop a vehicle that's behaving badly is dangerous. We also know, of course, that the, the discretion of which vehicles police stop is biased. I mean, we know that um, just by looking at the data. We also know that those traffic stops are the most likely moment when there is violence between uh, civilians and police. And therefore, this is a bad thing. We can design it out of the system by moving over to uh, video-based enforcement, and we get much more pervasive enforcement, which has the primary benefit of making the streets safer because we also know from the data that as soon as somebody gets a, a ticket, they actually start to behave better, right? And if they get a second one, they, they almost never get a third one. And that could make our streets much safer 
than they currently are. And, and that kind of story, it requires rethinking our assumptions. It requires re retooling the way institutionally and legally and technologically we do these things. But whether it's how you inspect buildings so that the facades don't fall onto the street or how you think about managing traffic, the, these are just two of the of many opportunities that we didn't even cover around solid waste management and, and wastewater and all sorts of things that the city does as a primary responsibility. Yeah, and some of these um, sort of procedural structures that was describing enable other things that are real quality of life things for New Yorkers. So every New Yorker knows about walking under the sidewalk sheds, especially when it's raining or has recently rained and you get these extra big drops of water hitting you that hopefully are just water. Uh, and those sheds are up for months. And I know Councilmember Kalos, among others, has introduced legislation to limit how long they're up for. And the reason they're up is a good reason. There's to inspect the facade and make sure that it's just a raindrop and not a piece of stone falling on you, right? Uh, but the drone chapter shows how there's more creative ways to maybe limit how many sidewalk sheds we have to walk under as pedestrians in the city. And likewise, with the ubiquitous enforcement that Ritz talking about, I know that in Washington, D.C., they, they had the cameras on street sweepers, right, going around the city. And when they were able to increase the amount of parking fines and violations, that, that, that funding was able to go directly towards more complete streets infrastructure, more biking infrastructure. That's how they funded the nice to have stuff that citizens want in the city that otherwise might not be funded. One of the things I like about this report is that you you didn't just focus on the opportunity of new tech, the shiny stuff, but also on the some of the hard human work that has to happen to make it possible. You talk about translating all of New York City's codes from from legal text into machine readable logic, uh, which I assume would be a big job. There's also a huge human piece of this. You've got to train entire industries on new technologies like BIM. Um, talk a little bit about the the human part of this or the the messy part um, that, that's necessary to kind of get the city ready for some of these technologies. Many of the tasks here are about retraining and, and, and retraining sounds like, oh, I've got to take six classes or something, but in, often it's just rethinking or reorienting or, or reimagining. Um, and, and I think the drones and facades example is really good. You know, there's one way to think about the question, can drones do a facade inspection? And that's to look at the rules for what a facade inspection currently requires and to say, well, can a drone automate those tasks? And right now the answer is no, because there's a physical component where literally an inspector is supposed to like reach in with a stick or his hand or something, right? Um, and a drone obviously can't do that. But if you're actually thinking more, more thoughtfully about what drones can do, your question is not, can they do what's prescribed? Your question is, can the kind of analysis that drones can perform do a better job of ensuring that the buildings are safe? And that would allow you to think about things that currently are not required, like doing in inspections much more frequently or doing a millimeter accuracy map, uh, 3D map that you compare from one six month point to another six month point or doing infrared inspections, which are currently not required. You know, and so part of the challenge is ensuring that both agencies and the private sector are thinking broadly about the task at hand and, and asking broad questions around what the technology can do. But then you're also totally right. Sometimes you've just got to force things. And I think this was a big opportunity, what you mentioned about BIM, that we uncovered that, and, and this is not just New York, it's true across the world, but the construction industry and the design industry has not yet fully embraced 
um, building information modeling as its universal language. So even though many advanced designs are being done, of course, in 3D on computers, it's not become the lingua franca of how the industry works together, both with the multiple participants on each project and with government. What's interesting is that New York City government, because it's the regulator, actually has the opportunity to trans to, to force that industry to adopt this new technology. You know, much like if you go back to say the early modern period, a transition to a cash economy happened in part because governments required taxes to be paid in coin and not in kind, right? And it and it forces a change. And I think there that's probably one of many opportunities that New York City has to encourage the city and different sectors of the economy to become more technologically advanced. The human side of all this is a huge part of it, especially when we look at how the, like the city of New York and, and its many staff use and build technology. And one of the things that always fascinates me about GovTech, I come from a nonprofit tech background where you know, we're, we're scrapping for Microsoft Office licenses donated, right? With GovTech, there are huge budgets. There's a huge amount of money already being spent on technology. It's a question of bureaucratically within the organizational structure of the city, are we doing that well? Can we do that well? And just one example on the human side, uh, one of my favorite government units anywhere in the world is the public engagement unit in New York City, which is a mayor's team focused explicitly on outreach. They specialize in outreach to the public, right? And they take modern outreach tactics, like they're doing phone banking like a political campaign would. They canvass door to door to help New Yorkers get vaccines and healthcare. And they're even doing peer-to-peer -peer texting like a campaign does. Um, so, so people can text back and get a real conversation with a real person and receive an SMS if they don't have a landline, right? But in that example of public engagement unit, even though they're budgeted for hundreds of employees, they are well under that in terms of who they've actually been able to hire up and staff the unit with. So they're understaffed, even though they're budgeted to have more team. So you've got you know under 200 people trying to serve eight and a half million New Yorkers you quickly see how the, the bureaucratic structure of, of the human side of it affects New Yorkers' experience with government. So that's a good place. We've only got a couple minutes left, so I wanna kind of um, just touch on what it would be like for a citizen living in, in this New York City that you describe. And there is quite a lot here uh, you have on both how a citizen's data might be managed, but also what the interface with the city would be like. Um, you kind of put a lot of thought into that. So what does it look like for me if I, you know, I live in Flatbush, Brooklyn, um, and I'm interacting with city services. Yeah, so on, on the data side, we talked about the privacy. Right now we've got sort of the worst of both worlds where there's limited protections for our data and you know, there's abuse all over the world and, and the US uh, by government you know, intelligence or law enforcement using our data when we don't want them to. And at the same time, when you want say a social service to have your data, you're giving the city your birth date for the 400th time, right? So um, we wrote about the data locker model and how social services in New York might be much easier to apply for things like public education or food stamps or other services by opting in to let multiple departments share your data. So just to make the application process smoother for you, right? So some convenience, quality of life things. Likewise, just in general, to sum up some of the different proposals in the report, a paradigm of government coming to you when there's an opportunity for you, rather than expecting everyone in New York City to have the time and energy and capacity to constantly monitor government for when a program might benefit them. So one example, we talk about um, automatically both live streaming public meetings, so community board meetings, so people can participate even if they have a job uh, or other things at that time, 
uh, but also transcribing and maybe alerting people when something they care about is mentioned in a meeting. And then they have the opportunity to go engage more fully, but they don't have to attend every weeknight meeting just to find out, you know, in case something comes up. So sort of shifting the paradigm to a more customer service oriented uh, New York City that can proactively reach you, whether it's outreach or setting up an alert or other ways. So one of the things I love about this report is it leaves a lot of questions for discussion. It doesn't suggest that it solved everything. What do you think happens next with this report? We've got a mayoral election on June uh, 22nd in the primary, uh, and then of course, November we'll, we'll elect a mayor. Um, what, what will happen now with this? How will you advance it? Well, our aspiration is to, uh, is to talk to a lot of people, both you know, formal advocacy organizations, interest groups, et cetera, um, also hopefully a, a variety of community organizations. We're gearing up to, to do that over the summer. We want to take feedback for, for a bunch of reasons. One, because we want to make sure we got everything right. I mean, sometimes you could do as much research as you want and still get your facts a little wrong. We want to make sure that we're thinking broadly um, because you know we're we're a good team. It's it's a diverse team with a bunch of different experiences, but we don't claim that we've got every potential New Yorker's experience in in mind. And and we want to make sure that we're not missing some unintended negative consequence or or whatever. And we also then want to ensure that. We're, we're capturing as many good ideas as possible. Uh, we included a bunch of ideas that we didn't have a chance to fully flesh out. We'd like feedback on them. Are they worth really bulking up and, and getting down to the details? Are there other ideas? And then there are some topics, for example, as I, I mentioned, like solid waste management, which are clearly ripe for this. Uh, and we didn't, we didn't tackle just because our time and resources didn't allow. So hopefully we'll be able to do more on that score. Indeed, there are some big questions in that final section, the problem of digitizing democracy, problem of ensuring those who don't use digital channels aren't left behind. I guess those will be in the next, uh, the next report. We'll have to expect that. You'll have to have us back. Indeed. Well, thank you, Matt. Thank you, uh, Reed. We appreciate it very much. Thanks, thank Justin. You, Justin. Great to be here. Opportunity. That's it for this week's show. I hope you will send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to our guests. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.